welcome to More Than Myths. Hello? 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 Hello. <laughs> you can hear me? Uh-huh. Okay, good. My stuff was all backwards. Oh, really? Still, yeah. My kids are playing Throw the Burrito. Oh, that's a fun game. I haven't played it, but they're enjoying the shit out of it. It's just yeah. so loud. I was like, can you play that in your room? Oh, shh, be quiet. Don't play so loud. Don't yeah, don't have too so much loud. fun. <laughs> Please. Welcome to episode 40. Four zero. Four zero. We're 12 away from a year. That's crazy. Go That's, us. That is so, I would love to figure out how many, like, how many hours have we put into this? Many. <laughs> many hours. Many an hour. Yeah. That's so much work. And so freaking, that's such a cool milestone. I agree. Agreed. You're going to be happy to hear that I renewed my Costco membership today. Oh, I am glad to hear that. You don't want to go without. No, it's been like two months. But I haven't needed to go to Costco for two months, so it's fine. Do you get your gas at Costco? I used to, but now it's like really... It's kind of on the way to work, I guess. Yeah. But it would be, I usually wait till the last minute to get gas, and it's like a 15-minute drive to Costco, sure. which would be on my way to work, but not Not enough not to make a difference. Yeah. Not convenient. Gotcha. So I almost filled up today, but it was a Sunday at Costco, and mm. no. I actually went yesterday and filled up, and it wasn't bad. Oh, that's good. It was like on the street, you know, like Chick-fil-A style parking. I was surprised because last week was crazy. It was. Whoa. Bonkers. Yeah. Anyway, um, enough about Costco. <laughs> well, except. <laughs> except it is one of our talking points. It is one of our talking points. And I might have adopted another Squishmallow today. You did. Yeah. What did you get? I, did, I actually didn't get them at Costco. I got them at Target. Still, Target's. I didn't. Listen, Costco's like Target's pushy big brother. Yeah. <laughs> it's all one family. <laughs> it's a it's a thing. They're all together. They You spend way too much money at both of these places, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They just suck the money from your wallets. Yes, they do. <laughs> um, no, it's an octopus. <gasps> and he's like neon green with these like little tentacles oh cute and he's got a sparkly belly is it just a little one because i have one too does it have ribbons as tentacles no he's just got oh. little it, it's almost like little pads oh i see beats, okay you know okay. but he no and he's a big he's big oh i guess mine's i guess mine's not oh my gosh i'm a dummy mine's a jellyfish not an octopus i'm an idiot oh <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, no, I added to my Squishmallow collection today. And my husband go. isn't going to hear this until he finds out, so it's going to be fine. Fine. Just welcome your new family I'm actually, member. Yeah, I'm just going to see if he notices that all. Oh. Because that's how many we have. He won't notice. It'll be fine. He's not going to notice. <laughs> when you have a hard time sitting down on the couch because there's too many Squishmallows, then you know. Actually, I was Might sitting. Be suspicious. <laughs> so I put them on the couch for summer. Uh huh. Because they're so fun and it's such a bright yeah. season, and I like uh -huh. to just have them all out. Yeah. And I was sitting on the couch yesterday, and I was like in between four of them, and it was <laughs> the coziest thing ever. So cozy. I was oh, so happy. I love them. I love them. I know. I'm always on the lookout. Always. Always. <laughs> yep. I don't have anything else exciting to report. What are you drinking? A black cherry truly and some water. 
because mm-hmm. I didn't drink enough water today. Same. I have water. It's almost gone, though. Gotta stay hydrated. <sighs> and then I'm drinking some of some Washington approved <laughs> drinking liquids. <laughs> Drinking liquids. Oh my gosh. Cannabis. Cannabis infused. Cannabis. Whoa. What did you do? I didn't do anything. That was wild. What happened? Wow, it's so loud. I don't know. Maybe you accidentally touched it? I don't know. That was weird. Okay. Is that better? Yeah, that's I think fine. I turned it up. Yeah, maybe just a little bit because it was like it was loud. It was a lot. It was loud. Oh, sorry, <laughs> freak you out <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. <clears throat> Logan was watching a scary movie last night. Oh sure. And I was like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm gonna go to bed. What was he watching? Ouija. I don't think I've seen that one. I haven't either, but I was like, mm-hmm. nah, we nah. know that stuff's not real now. I know it's not real, but I'm also like, nah, yeah, I'm all right. I'll pass. I'm good. I understand. I'm good. And so I was like, okay, this is fine. I'm going to just go to bed. And then he came upstairs later that I didn't know he came upstairs and my door just creaked. <gasps> and then he was standing there and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, totally freaked out. What freaked. are you doing? I was like, Why are you? You need a, you need a cough or something. <laughs> Don't just walk up here. Yeah. Clear your throat next time. <laughs> oh, I scared the crap out of me. Announce your presence. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? I am so ready. All right. Continue our queer stories in mythology series. Yeah. Part two. Woo-hoo. We are going to talk about the mothers of Bagiratha from Indian mythology. Ooh. Yeah. It's dope. Okay, so we're going to start out with some background and give you... This is my first Indian myth. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely spent a lot of time um, kind of making sure I'm saying things correctly, but also please send us an email or yell at me. If you know I'm saying it wrong, I'm happy to learn. And I did my I did my best, so let me know. Anyway, so we're going to start out. The Hindu king Bagiratha is best known to be one the one who brought the Ganges River to Earth, and that's G A N G E S. Yeah, and I've always heard it Ganges. I think is that not right? Or is it Ganges? Ganges. Yeah, I've yeah, heard it Ganges both ways. River. I guess right. I think so. Anyway, um, so this river is actually said to be holy and one of the most holy places in the world and is located in northern India. And it travels from the base of the Himalayas all the way to the Bay of Bengal. And so why does it, why is it holy? Um, it's said that thousands of, thousands of people flock to worship at this river. And if you were to take a swim, you'd be washed away of all sin. Hmm. Um, and some of the most holy cities of in, in India are located along this river. So Bagiratha is a king responsible for bringing this gift to earth and to the humans. Um, the Ganga River was said to once flow in the heavens, and it he pleased the gods through tasks, which that's a whole myth in itself, but I did just want to give some background on who this who this guy is. Gotcha. But he pleased the gods through tasks to bring the river to earth. And to free his ancestors, there's like a dead uncle and then decades of kings who couldn't bring this river to earth kind of thing. Oh, okay. And he succeeded in finally freeing his ancestors from their um, imprisonment, I suppose. So anyway, however, our story is not about Agiritha. It's about his moms. Gotcha. So Bagiratha translates or indicates, according to historians... That it means he was born of two vulvas or two female sex organs is what it like is another way I saw it translated. So okay, born of two women. 
Okay. And his story, um, his father, King Dalipa, was the king of the Sun Dynasty. Um, and he was desperate to have a son, you know? Yeah. Like all kings are. An heir. <laughs> he needs an heir to the throne. Mm -hmm. And he made countless efforts through praying to the gods, asking to do things to be blessed, mm -hmm. and went through his whole life and ended up dying with no heir. Oh. Yeah. This was an issue for a few reasons. The kingdom of Iodia had no king, and you need a king, and no successors. They're just, they don't have anybody. So they just have ministers who are kind of running yeah. things, and that's it. And it was also said that the god Vinshu, Vishnu was supposed to take birth in this line of kings and had not done so yet. So this is something that the gods knew. Mm-hmm. And had planned, and they ha knew this needed to happen, but they they had no more line. So the line okay. couldn't die off. It yeah. wasn't an option. And so Shiva, and for those who don't know, we're going to do a quick aside just so we can kind of figure out, hey, who's this guy? Mm -hmm. um, Shiva is, he is one of Hinduism's holy trinity and is considered to be the great god, but also the destroyer. So this god, Shiva... Uh, declares that the two widows are Shiva, sorry, um, declares that the two widows of King Dalipa, um, since they were queens, would be able to provide an heir to a th the throne. So this is where the few versions of the story that I read were really different about how they found the information that they needed to move oh. forward with their relationship. So one of them was that the widowed king's wives went to their priest, worried and concerned that they were not able to produce a son with the king. And the priest told them not to worry and that they would need to drink this potion he created and then engage in intercourse together. Mm -hmm. So then there were some other places where I read that they were greeted by Shiva and told like, hey, you guys engage in intercourse. We will bless this union and you will, it will provide you with a son. Yeah. Um, there's one where they both dreamed that Shiva came to them and told them to lay together. And then they spoke oh. about it the next day and were like, okay. oh, this must be what we need to, to, to do. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of kind of different interpretations of like how they were, how this information came to them. Um, normally, widows were meant to practice celibacy and lead a single life without going after any sort of pleasure or indulgence. They were mm -hmm. supposed to be in mourning and just kind of live their life alone. Mm -hmm. um, however, the queens Chandra and Mala went on their own journey. So after being told this, they they didn't just hop in bed. Mm -hmm. They spent time together. Mm, okay. And they built their already – they already had a relationship. And I'll mm -hmm. talk about that in a minute. But their relationship began to grow. And then it went from, you know, long conversations and, you know, kind of romantic dinners to kissing in the late king's bedroom and, mm -hmm. you know, starting to get, like, comfortable with each other and yeah. really starting to fall in love together uh, with each mm -hmm. other. So their relationship began to grow. And then something to note in the aspect of polygamy is the husband and his wife and the co-wives are meant to spend their whole life together. Mm-hmm. So the article that I was reading this from was kind of this, um, like, LGBTQ um, take on the myth and, like, what it meant then and what it means now. So polygamy is kind of put in this negative light these days or it's, mm -hmm. like, or there's a lot of, like, jealousy or yeah, that kind of thing. This – that wasn't really the standard. It was mm -hmm. a whole partnership. It was a whole – relationship it wasn't really meant it's just what they did yeah it wasn't there wasn't a jealousy yeah aspect to it yeah so naturally the bonds with all the wives they're already really close to each other mm -hmm. their family you know yeah. so the fact that these two were encouraged to make life together and then after being close already love wasn't a stretch from where they started so however they courted for about 10 months before they ever had sex. So after falling for each other and falling in love with each other and becoming very close, 
they lay together and got busy. Mm. Um, and their union was actually graced by Kama, the god of desire. So it was like even more like everything they did in this process was all blessed by the gods. Yeah. Right. And shortly after their sexual encounter, Queen Mala, who was the older of the two, uh, became pregnant. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bagiratha was conceived. Before he was born, the queen was still really confused at how this worked out and felt that her love was too unconventional and that she would need to kill herself in the river. Yeah, she was oh. having a hard, hard time with it. Yeah. Um, she was stopped, however, by the gods. They stepped in and reminded her that it was not unnatu- unnatural and it was something that they encouraged them to do yeah. and to remember that this baby was a blessing. A beautiful baby boy was born. This story is extra beautiful because it shows that a hero can come from anyone. Yeah. Including two mamas. Mm-hmm. And it shows that these women were so committed to bringing forth a king to their people and ultimately for the greater good that they they did something that wasn't truly something encouraged. Yeah. But then went to and really put the like work into it mm-hmm. and effort. Right? They, yeah. It, I don't know. It's just such a beautiful story. And the art <laughs> I found on this is so freaking you have to see this picture. Oh, I love it. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. Yeah, it's you'll have like, to send that to me and I'll add it to the deck. Yeah. So anyway, I found this really beautiful um like graphic novelist who did a whole graphic. That is awesome. Um, novel on I this love myth, it. Or I love like the graphic style. short. Mm-hmm. And this um, is just, it's so pretty. And it's just a reminder that, like, I think lesbianism gets really, like, fetishized. And, yes. it, you know, so it's like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, this is so dirty. Right. And right. It's like, this photo is just so It's beautiful. so pure. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's just love. So, anyway, that is the story of Bagiratha and his two mamas. Just not for anything, but just because. Just because. That dog. That dang dog. Actually, we're going to talk about dogs today. Are we? We are. (laughs) So we previously had talked about cats in ancient Egypt. Felines. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to talk about canines in ancient Egypt. Namely, Anubis. Yes! Yeah. <laughs> so excited. So Anubis is the Egyptian god of mummification and the afterlife, as well as the patron god of lost souls and the helpless. And for being one of the most well-known deities of the ancient Egyptian like pantheon, there aren't very many stories about him. Really? Surprisingly. Yeah. I was surprised. I thought that there'd be a bunch of stories about him. Negative. But tell me, do you think about Rachel Vice saying Anubis all the time? (laughs) I do. (laughs) Well, every time I say Anubis, you can (laughs) because it's a lot. We've got some semantic satiation going on with Anubis. (laughs) I just love when she says it, the mummy. It just makes me so happy. Anubis. So I'm gonna give you as much information as I can about him. But we're also going to get into mummification as well. Ooh, goody. And what, what would happen to you after you died? Because why not? The whole process. The whole the whole thing. Um, so Anubis wasn't always known as Anubis. And his role actually changed over time. So his original name, his original, original name was JNPW. Yeah, just JNPW. So in ancient Egyptian... Um, Oh, sorry, JMPW in ancient Egyptian, but some translations of that had rendered it into Anpu or Inpu, and that translates into to decay. Um, So after the Greeks and later the Romans arrived in Egypt and started having influences over the area, um, a composite of Anubis and the Greek god Hermes was actually created, and he was named Hermanubis. So it's thought that perhaps he 
developed from the jackal god Wepwawet. But I've also seen that they are brothers or half-brothers, or maybe not even related. I'm not sure. But um, Wepwawet is also a canine-headed god, mm-hmm. but he's depicted as gray or white. He's not painted black like Anubis is. Okay. So Anubis also has a bunch of other names. Among them are first of the Westerners, Lord of the Sacred Land, he who is upon his sacred mountain, ruler of the nine boughs, I believe. Um, the dog who swallowed millions, master of secrets, he who is in the place of embalming, and foremost of the divine booth. So what is Anubis and where did he originate from? So he is one of the oldest deities whose name appears in the walls of tombs or mastabas that Mm -hmm. date all the way back to the pre-dynastic period in Egypt, which is roughly 6,500 to 3,150 BCE. Whoa, okay. So this is before the first pyramid was constructed. And they would have these mastabas that they would put their deceased in. Mm -hmm. Um, So before mummification actually evolved, a person's body was placed in the fetal position and put into a pit. There would be like personal items like jewelry or clay pots that were added with the body. And then it was covered with sand, which would help absorb all the water from the body, which would Mm -hmm. help to preserve it. Um, There's actually, I watched a thing on YouTube that was um, about these 10 famous mummies that this woman had found around the world. And there's one called the Gebelin Man. And he was found at the site of Gebelin in Upper Egypt, and he died about 3500 BCE. And they don't think he was actually buried, but he was stabbed in the back. And whoever killed him just hit his body. But it's so hot, and there's, I mean, you're buried in sand. And it, he's actually one of the best naturally preserved individuals in the world. Whoa. There's also a Gebelin woman that was found in the same area, and she's one of the earliest evidence of people getting tattoos, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So these burial pits would eventually be lined with mud bricks and roofed over. Um, I believe that they also tried wrapping the bodies in animal skins and putting them in pottery baskets or wooden coffins, but that caused the body to decay, and Mm -hmm. you didn't that because it wasn't in contact with the sand didn't dry it out as well so eventually the practice evolved to into mummification as we know it today okay i did see a couple of places where people thought that maybe this was like pyramids were created to also help prevent bodies being destroyed mm. um i don't know maybe call them a maybe call them you know I'm a pharaoh and I need a magnificent resting place. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Anyway, so in these pits, the bodies were being scavenged. And you need your body in the afterlife because to have your body destroyed was a fate worse than death. So what's the best way to fight fire with fire? A jackal-headed god that would protect the dead against those scavenging jackals that were seeking to do these dead persons harm. Right. So Anubis's role evolved as pyramids were being built and stuffed full of countless treasures. It's really tempting for grave robbers. And so to ward off these robbers, um, artisans would decorate the tombs with sculptures and carvings of Anubis. So in these depictions, Anubis is usually shown tending to the corpse of the person, presiding over the mummification rituals and funerals, or standing with Osiris, Thoth, mm-hmm. or the other gods at the wing of the heart in the Hall of Two Truths, making sure that the ceremony is done fairly. And I'll tell you about that later. Later. So priests would also inscribe curses into the tomb walls, which would invoke Anubis. And promised severe punishment in this life and the next to any who would, like, desecrate the tombs mm-hmm. or the body inside. Um, so he is depicted as a canine. Um, he usually has the body of a man and the head of a jackal. Mm-hmm. Although occasionally he is just a jackal. Usually sitting. Yeah. Um, but why black? So to the Egyptians, black symbolized good fortune mm-hmm. and the possibility of rebirth in the afterlife. 
Um, it also symbolizes the fertile soil of the Nile River Valley, which represented regeneration and life and so much of their agriculture. And that area was absolutely dependent on. But also when a body is embalmed, it turns a really dark black color. Interesting. Uh, let's see. Uh, so in early mythology, Anubis was thought to be the son of Ra and either the cow goddess Heset or the lion goddess Bastet. But in the most well-known version of his origin, he's depicted as the illegitimate son of Nephthys and Osiris. So there are many different stories, many different versions of this story. So I'm going to tell you the one that I found. Okay. But Nephthys um, is Isis's sister, right? Yep. Yeah. So there's Nephthys, Set, or Seth. I call them Seth, but we'll call them Set. So Nephthys, Set, Osiris, and Isis. So oh, Nephthys, yeah, that's right. Yep. They're all related. They're all the first four. Yep. Forgot. So Nephthys is so enamored with Osiris that one night she disguises herself as Isis and tricks him into having sex with her. Oh boy. She becomes pregnant, but she's so worried about Seth finding out what she's done that when she gives birth, she abandons the baby. And Isis, who is well known for her maternal benevolence, mm -hmm. with the help of wild dogs, finds the baby adopts him she's the one who names him anubis and from then on he would serve as her loyal protector it's truly it's making me burp <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunately set finds out about osiris and nephthys and this is perhaps why set decided to host a party build the box lock his <gasps> brother in the box throw it in the nile find his body later chop it up scatter him across egypt causing isis Osiris's wife to gather up all of the pieces and she comes to Anubis asking for help in bringing Osiris back to life. Yeah. Of course Anubis is going to help her. Mm -hmm. So along with Ra, Horus, and Thoth, he wraps the body in cloth and completes what would become known as the opening of the mouth ritual, which I will also tell you about. Cool. And the process of mummification and embalming came to be so that Osiris could go into the afterlife. Okay. Set though finds out what's happening and he's not one to let the job go unfinished he has he has to destroy osiris's body so he turns himself into a leopard and he tries to take osiris's body but anubis isn't going to let that happen mm -mm. and he defeats that and he brands his body with a hot iron which is why a leopard has his spots nice yeah so after set is defeated anubis skins him and wears the pelt as a warning to evildoers. Anubis is married or has a wife. Her name is Anput. Uh, she's the goddess of funerals and mummification. And their daughter is the serpent goddess Kebeshet, who is a goddess of purification, who I believe is also, she gives water to people as they're waiting to have their heart weighed. Pretty oh, sure. okay. Pretty sure. Um, so during this embalming process, when someone died, the Egyptian priests would wear leopard skin robes as well as Anubis masks. Um, I did find this really cool article from the Met Museum, and they actually have this leopard skin robe from a priest. Oh, man, I don't know if I can pronounce his name. Harned. The, they ha it's a priest. It's a priest. <laughs> He's a priest. Um, so it would serve as a powerful symbol of regeneration, which is particularly relevant for these priests that were involved in embalming and mummification rituals. Um, so it would depictions have would suggest that they would actually wear pelts, but nearly all of the surviving examples are made from just linen, and they were painted with red, yellow, and purple, red, yellow, and blue. Sorry, rosettes. Okay. So after being resurrected, Osiris descends into the underworld where he became God, ruler and judge of the dead, replacing Anubis, which he allowed graciously. And then Anubis took on the role of guide to the dead, as well as Osiris's kind of right-hand man and protector. I wrote a really bad joke. I can't wait. <laughs> I want to tell you it's so bad. No, that makes me want to hear it even more. So let's unwrap mummification uh, <laughs> <laughs> and what happened to you after you died. It's so bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I told you. 
Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. So it was originally thought that the only person who could gain immortality in eternal life was the pharaoh. But that changed over time. Mm -hmm. So around 2000 BCE, attitudes changed and everyone who could ev everyone could live in the afterlife as long as the body was mummified and the proper elements were placed in the tomb. But this was expensive. And so only the wealthy were able to take advantage of it. Shocking. Yeah. Yep. So around 2600 BCE, during the fourth and fifth dynasties, it's thought that the Egyptians probably began to mummify the dead intentionally instead of accidentally. Um, and like everything, they got better and better at it. They got so good, in fact, that you can see a mummy tonight, today and have a really good idea of what that person looked like. It's also a really good reminder because these were real people. Mm -hmm. They had real lives. They, you know, fell in love and had arguments and had aspirations and their favorite snack. Like, um, one of the most famous and well-preserved mummies is Seti the first. Mm -hmm. So he's the second pharaoh of the 19th dynasty, and he ruled from 1294 to 1279 BCE. He is the father of Ramses the second. And in that documentary, this woman, Bethany Hughes, she talks about how SETI actually boasts some of the finest mummification techniques that ever existed. If you look at pictures of him, he's actually beautiful. It's weird to say that about a mummy, but he's amazing. She talks to this woman named Sahar Salam, who's the professor, a professor of radiology, and she calls him a sleeping beauty. Um, so she wanted to know kind of what his secret was. And she says that the ancient Egyptians were very efficient as plastic surgeons. And during his mummification, they placed feathers. They like packed his face with feathers mm -hmm. around the nose and the mouth in his cheeks and in his temples to prevent his face from collapsing and shriveling up. Falling, so yeah. usually the nose on a mummy will disappear. But yeah. Sadi's nose is totally intact. Like, yeah. He's incredibly preserved. Yeah, it's amazing. He looks great. Yeah, for being, you know, however old he is. Real old. He's That's real wild. old. Yeah. Yeah, so there are different levels Ugh. of mummification, which I had no idea. The first one is the one we're most familiar with. So a person would die, and the body would be taken to the embalmers. They were usually priests, and they mm -hmm. would wash the body with water from the Nile. Um, they would usually... I'd seen that they would mix that water with palm wine because it would help remove bacteria and it would also mm -hmm. help to prevent the body from decaying. Okay. Then they would insert a bronze hook into your nose to break your ethmoid bone so that they could get to your brain, for lack of a better word, mix your brain up. Yeah. And then they would let it drain out your nose. Ugh. I know. What they couldn't get out, they would dissolve with, like, chemicals so that they... And it would also disinfect your skull. I know. Sorry. Yeah. But it, this would disinfect and reduce decay because your body is, you need your body. Really right. important. Um, so as far as I know, the Egyptians didn't consider the brain to be a really important organ. Um, that was your heart. So like everything else, the brain's got to go. Um, the preliminary stages of mummification involved the opening or violation of the body. Mm -hmm. And the only one that was allowed to perform this was Anubis himself. So the priest who took on this role was called the overseer of the mysteries. And it was thought that he would be transformed into the god Anubis and would then be able to legitimately cut open the corpse of the mum for the mummification process. So during this, like I said, he would be wearing an Anubis mask and the leopard skin, which would allow him to transform into Anubis. Right. So they would make an incision on the left-hand side of the body, and they would remove all internal organs. Mm -hmm. They would place them in canopic jars called the Four Sons of Horus. So the liver was placed in a jar with a human head of Imseti. The baboon-headed Happy looked after the lungs. The jackal-headed Dwamatef. I am 100% sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. But this uh, deity was responsible for the stomach and the falcon-headed oh, Queba Senuef. Queba Senuef? Sure. Sounds good. Cared for the intestines. 
Um, so prior to canopic jars being used, the internal organs would be removed and they would be wrapped up and buried in the floor of the tomb. But then things evolve and they would use canopic jars and yeah. I have a question. Answer. Because maybe I have always thought that they put those organs in dripping, you know, oh, into the sure. jar. Mm -hmm. But it was it was until it wasn't until Moon Knight. Yeah. They would burn the organs and then put the ashes into the jar. I've seen different things. I've okay. seen that they would wash them and mummify them and put them into jars. I did oh. see that they would burn them and put the ashes into jars. I also saw other instances where there wasn't anything in the jars. That maybe they were like mummified and put back in the body. I don't know. Maybe all okay. options. Okay. Because yeah. I literally, I've always just been like, they just scooped stuffed it. Stuffed them in there. That's what I thought shove too. Shove them in. Like, but no, everything Wiped is, off the outside. and Yeah. <laughs> no, everything's like clean and disinfected and rinsed out and. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so after their organs are removed, um, the person's body cavity is washed out with palm wine. And again, it's um, washed out with an infusion of ground spices. They would then fill the body cavity with myrrh, cassia, and other aromatic substances. And I saw two different things. They would also stuff small bags of natron in it. Or they would, like, fill it with sawdust and stuff. Uh -huh. But that may also have been later to help preserve the, like, shape, shape. of the body so that it wasn't sunken and look like a mummy. Mm -hmm. So they would sew it up and then they would, um, they'd put it in a, like, a trench, mm -hmm. a pit, I guess. And they'd cover it with natron and they'd leave it for 35 to 40 days. And every couple of weeks they would actually replace the bags of natron inside the body mm -hmm. and around it to help dry it out because the natron will suck the moisture liquids and fats out of your body. So it's going to get yucky. Yeah. After the 35 to 40 days was up, the body is washed and to make the mummy seem even more lifelike, sunken areas of the body are filled out with linen or other material. False eyes are added. Sometimes I saw that they would use, like, little onions. No. For <laughs> yeah. No. No. <laughs> I just... No. I wasn't expecting no. that. <laughs> no. I'm just imagining <laughs> discovering a mummy and, like, eyes... The onion eyes looking at you you know like you're like ah! yuck yuck no. well i mean okay. your eyes are just water so they would get dried out and i know that's why it would be yucky. really shocking to it see something really... looking at you yeah oh no i don't yuck. like that imagery okay mm -hmm. i'm surprised i wasn't i wasn't expecting that to get you oh i don't know why it did i just yeah. imagined eyeballs i didn't Ugh. like the onions they would also use like linen pads to Make it look like an eyeball. Anyway. Yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. um, so after that, um, the priests would begin wrapping the mummy in linen. Sometimes they would use as many as 35 layers. So that's hundreds of yards of linen. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they would wrap each individual finger and toe. And then they would wrap the whole hand or foot together, like as a whole um, and as they would wrap these mummies, the priests would read spells to protect and to help the person reawaken in the afterlife. They would also tuck amulets into the wrapping. And the Egyptians believed that the amulets would ensure safe passage and existence into the afterlife. So it would help protect them because the afterlife is a dangerous place. Okay. So interesting. Um, King Tutankhamun was actually found with more than 140 amulets tucked into his wrappings. Oh, wow. Yeah. So at several stages, they would stop wrapping and they would cover the wrapped form in warm resin. And then they would continue to wrap. Mm -hmm. So the next lowest level of mummification, the person's organs were not removed, but oil of cedar was injected into the body through the anus which was stopped up afterwards to prevent the liquid from escaping. 
The body was then put into a pit and cured with natron for the same number of days. And on the last, the body was unplugged. <laughs> yeah. And the oil was drained with the body. I'm going to read you a quote. No! Quote. The effect was so powerful that as it leaves the body, it brings with it the viscera in a liquid state. And as the flesh has been dissolved by the natron, nothing of the body is left but skin and bones. Wow. That's bananas. That's crazy to me. That, I'm, I'm, I had no not idea. Well. <laughs> Agreed. While I was reading this, I was like, wow. <laughs> Okay, so the third and cheapest method of embalming was simply to wash out the intestines and wrap them up, cure the body in natron for 70 days. And that was it. Um, so even the poorest Egyptians was given the opportunity to have some kind of ceremony mm -hmm. because if the deceased was not properly buried, the soul would return in the form of a ghost to haunt the living. And ghosts were considered a very serious and very real threat. It was... Not something to be messed with. Not taken lightly. Yeah. Cool. So all of these things having been done, the body's wrapped up, let's say, for the sake that it's a pharaoh that's just passed away. Um, and before the person is brought inside the tomb, the opening of the mouth ceremony is performed. So this rite would reanimate the deceased or animate a statue so that it could eat, see, breathe, hear, and otherwise enjoy the afterlife. Mm -hmm. So I'd seen it where there's the tomb where you have the sarcophagus. And then there's another room that's adjacent to it that's sealed up. And there's like a hole. And the face of the statue would be like through this hole. So that if the body was disturbed, the statue would still like be their backup kind of deal. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this opening of the mass ceremony is conducted by um, the Sem priests, who's again dressed in a leopard skin robe. And during this ceremony, they would read more spells and they would touch various parts of the mummy or the statue with different instruments to um, open these parts of the body so that these senses could be used in the afterlife. So then the body is sealed in the temple or in the tomb, I guess it's not hmm, tomb temple, whatever. Right. Um, and kind of everybody that's living goes home and goes about their life. But mm. what happens to that person's soul? They, The ancient Egyptians believe that the soul is made up of different components. So I saw different numbers. There's nine oh. is the most common one. Mm -hmm. But it was also thought to be five or in other cases seven. Um, so your ka is your physical body. Your ka is one's double form. Um, your ba is a human-headed bird aspect. And if you look at pictures... Oh, I have some pictures that I'll post, but like knowing all this stuff, you can kind of pick out the different aspects of like what's happening. Like there'd be the person and then behind them, there's the same person's head, but they have the body of a bird. Your shuyet was the shadow self. Your mm -hmm. ak was the immortal transformed self. Um, your sha, your sahu, and your sechem, se se were all aspects of the Ak. Your Ab is the heart and it's your source of good and evil. And your Ren was one secret name that was given to you when you were born by the gods. And the only person that knows that is the gods. Um, so your Ka is needed to exist in order for the Ka and the Ba to recognize itself so that the body, so the body needs to be as preserved and intact as possible. Mm -hmm. So when the soul awakens in its tomb, it was thought that they would be disoriented and confused. So they would line the tomb with hieroglyphs and also in the casket, there would be hieroglyphs and things around them so that it would help them remember who they were in life, where they were now and what they needed to do and how to proceed in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. So what we know as the book of the dead or the book of coming forth by day was used to help the soul know how to navigate the afterlife and to help bring like kind of calm and peace to them. Like it's all right. This is where you are. It's right. safe. You just have to get through from point A to point B. This right. is how you do it. 
Um, so I actually purchased a copy of the Book of the Dead recently. Um, it was published in 2000, so things may have changed. But in the introduction, the author explains that the reason why Egyptologists chose the term Book of the Dead was because the texts on funeral papyri were divided into individual spells or chapters, and there's nearly 200 of them. Mm. Um, if the prospective owner of the Book of the Dead had been wealthy in life um, and his death was not untimely, then they would commission an expert scribe to write the text for them, and it would consist of their own personal choice of chapters. Um, others who may not have been wealthy or had died suddenly could get an already written text, and it would have spaces where they could kind of inscribe their name, like insert their name and titles. Mm -hmm. um, so it was Anubis who would show up and would help guide them to the Hall of Two Truths or the Hall of Justice, where before entering this hall, they had to proclaim to a tribunal of 42 judge gods that they were innocent of a whole list of sins. 42 sins to be exact and they ranged from like i didn't kill anybody to i didn't build a dam over running water this was called the ceremony of negative confession which is kind of a contradictory title but um another name was the declaration of innocence okay so if they successfully convinced the tribunal of 42 then they would enter into the final judgment into the in the hall of two truths and this was where either Osiris or Anubis would pull the dead person's heart from their chest and place it on a set of golden scales. So their heart was weighed against the feather of Ma'at, who is the goddess of truth, justice, and order. And they would see if the heart was weighed down by lies. Anubis would watch over this, and the results were recorded by Thoth, who was usually depicted as sitting on top of the scales or to the side with like paper and pen. <laughs> um <laughs> <thick>. yeah <laughs> uh this uh, it's also so the weighing of the heart is i'm assuming probably used to try to help deter people also from robbing graves because your heart keeps track of everything that you've ever done or said or thought or you know whatever so if you mm -hmm. rob somebody your heart's gonna tell right we can't hide it if the scales are not balanced then Osiris or Anubis would throw your heart on the ground where it was devoured by Amit, mm -hmm. the female devourer of the dead. And her name is generally translated as devourer, but also as bone eater and devourer of millions. She is depicted as having the forequarters of a lion, the hindquarters of a hippopotamus, and the head of a crocodile, mm -hmm. um, which are the three largest man-eating animals known to ancient Egyptians. Um, and she wasn't actually considered a god. She was kind of more of a demon mm -hmm. kind of deal. So her eating their heart would result in, quote, the great death, which was where the soul would just be restless. Like the ancient Egyptians didn't have a hell, but having your ba eaten by Amit was a fate worse than death. Like mm -hmm. you were just lost. Yeah. Which is terrible. If the scales were balanced... The soul would then be able to move on the like through onto the path, which led to Lily Lake, which is also known as the Lake of Flowers. There's a couple different things I read about what can happen on this trail. In some of them, the soul would face dangers or they would come across gods that had to be helped or guided or, you know, whatever. Other times it was just they just walked down this path and they made it to the lake. Mm -hmm. Once they got to the lake, they would meet the divine ferryman. Haraf, Harafhef, or he who looks behind him, who was a very unpleasant character. The soul would have to find a way to be courteous to him, no matter what kind, what unkind or cruel remark he made, and to show one's self-worth of being able to continue their journey. Mm -hmm. So finally, after crossing the waters to the field of reeds, the soul would find those loved ones who had passed on before, including one's favorite dogs or cats that had also died <laughs> gazelles or monkeys the person's home would be there the exact same way it had been in life as well as um, all the agricultural chores that a person was expected to get done in life so because you don't want to spend the afterlife working right they wrote into the book of the dead shabti figures and they would have dolls that were put into tombs and there would be the spell that was read called the Shopti formula 
and it would relieve the debt of all hard work and it would pass that hard work onto these dolls and they would go out into the fields and harvest and sow and do all the things that was needed. Then the person would be able to enjoy the afterlife, all their favorite people were there, all their favorite animals, their possessions, their favorite foods was all right. there. Yeah. So in a tomb from 1400 BCE, there's an inscription that states, may I walk every day unceasing on the banks of my water. May my soul rest on the branches of the trees which I have planted. May I refresh myself in the shadow of my sycamore. So in all the ancient worlds, there's never been a more comforting afterlife imagined by another culture. And in this host's humble opinion, I'd have to say I agree. Mm. So there you go. That's Anubis and mummification and I'm get into the field of reading. Afterlife. Wow. Yeah. That was amazing. I'm it was glad a you whole like journey. It. it was a whole journey from birth start to, to finish. Death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's actually better. Anyway, thanks for tuning in this week, you guys. We really appreciate you being here. Remember, check out a check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok for all of our content and make sure you share it with your friends and family. If you want to send us an email, you can do so at more than at gmail.com wherever you podcast, be it Apple or Google or Spotify or wherever we also podcast. Um, if you just follow and subscribe or leave us a review, give us a little pot, a little bump. We would be perfect. Really, <laughs> we would appreciate it. And remember you can always check out our dragon fund. That is our subscription based, um, Subscription monthly, monthly. Yeah. <laughs> um, that you can help donate towards the podcast production. And we would appreciate anything you can do. Remember, if you love us, tell your friends, tell your family, and tell your dad, Happy Father's Day. Oh, tell your dad, Happy Father's Day. Until next time, stay curious. Bye. Bye.